the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. Whenever I just get a little bit down or a little bit depressed about the goings-on in our society or in education or higher education or politics and public policy, I uh, always remember I have a friend. We all have a friend in Pete Peterson. He is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, which is a great friend to public policy if you're serious about doing serious public policy work. Um, that is the school to go to. And the website is publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I don't know what it's uh, like in uh, typically sunny California, but in Phoenix today, Pete, it's a bit overcast. And if I may quote MacArthur or Willy Wonka, you shine a good deed in a weary world. It's delightful to have you back, sir. And always great to be with you, Seth. Thank you so very much. Is it a shiny day, a sunshiny day in California, or is it a little... Actually, a little gray today, little gray as today. we conclude our, our first week of classes here at the Policy School. So That's where I wanted uh, to start it, actually. I wanted yeah. to start right there, because a dear friend and longtime friend of mine and yours, and uh, obviously uh, no stranger to this show, is Stephen Hayward, who is a yeah. pr- visiting professor over at the Pepperdine School. He Did he give the incoming address to the students? Do I understand that right? He did. He did to the new students. So that was uh, that was just last week. New student orientation here. So our our new crop of graduate students uh, arrived here in Malibu and and got a chance to hear from one of our newest uh, visiting faculty members, Dr. Hayward, who gave really a, a remarkable talk, which uh, thankfully he's posted up on his own uh, blog webpage. And uh, just a a terrific talk about the importance of public service, the calling to public service, but also the importance of public leaders having this well-rounded education that not only takes in the quantitative side of of, uh, public policy, but also the historical and philosophical side. And those are certainly um, values and aspects of uh, education that we hold dearly here uh, at Pepperdine. That was kind of a big debate in the study of politics. Some programs call it government. Some programs call it political science, political theory, political philosophy. It was that latter issue versus the quantitative issue. And a lot of us thought that that whole area, that whole field of study got off track when it became uh, so deeply entrenched in the quantitative side of things. I'm going to guess Steve took a position on this. (laughs) <laughs> he sure did. Okay. That's yeah, the Steve no, I, I mean, know. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, yeah. Steve, uh, obviously, with his uh, background in political science and, and history um, and just his research and work on uh, political leaders, obviously, uh, most notably on Ronald Reagan, mm-hmm. understands that, um, you know, there's a difference between a bureaucrat and a leader mm-hmm. and uh, the ability to not only understand quantitatively why policy A works better than policy B, but to also situate it and argue for it in a public arena. One of the 
parts of uh, Steve's speech that I think he um, really outlined so well was that uh, there's a public part of public policy. And while that sounds trite in a certain way, um, you know, many of these graduate policy schools uh, really do focus on the analytical part without really fully considering the fact that the same exact set of policy conditions could give you a different outcome in Phoenix as it would in Los Angeles, as it would in uh, someplace in uh, in Omaha, Nebraska. Mm -hmm. And uh, that ability to situate and address and argue for uh, public policy changes uh, in the context of which you're working, in the history and culture in which you're working, is really what separates a bureaucrat from a from a leader. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a. Uh, there's several distinctions one might think about in the, in this area of discussion. It's quite simply, I think of it, and others before me and smarter, obviously, have kind of thought of it as 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 the difference between the is and the ought, where the modern day quantitative yep. analysts can't do the ought and don't want to talk about the ought. They don't want to talk about the ends, the telos, the right or wrong of something. They just want to be able to describe something. So they might be very able to, in the words of Steve's and my professor, Harry Jaffa, describe Nazi Germany to a fairly well, but they won't be able to tell you why it was wrong. For example, to be to be to be graphic. Yeah, no, I, I I think that the you know the extreme case makes the yeah. makes the point. Right. Um, you know, there uh, our longtime and beloved uh, uh, late professor uh, Dr. McAllister would right. always say right. that you know there are a lot of policies that that work, but are they good? Right, right. And that second level question is not only important in making public policy, but when we think back on the great political leaders. Uh, of the United States or any Winston Churchill in in Great Britain. Right. Uh, these were people that were not simply saying this policy direction that I'm advocating is better because uh, we've seen in the data that it is going to increase high school graduation rates or right. whatever the issue is. They were making arguments based on history and culture uh, in such a way that they understood that the public at some point was going to have to approve of these decisions. Mm-hmm. And uh, that ability to what we would say think historically and think philosophically is so important when you get to the implementation stage, Mm -hmm. which is where, frankly, a lot of public policy falls apart. Um, It can it can look great on an Excel spreadsheet. But the second you bring it out into the public square, if you're not mindful of these, some might argue softer concepts, but nonetheless, they can be determinative of whether. Uh, public policies succeed or fail. Um, if you're not familiar with that, you really can be setting yourself up for failure. I've been thinking a lot about related themes to that, and I've seen you doing a bunch of media this week as well, uh, televised, cable, and otherwise, uh, mm-hmm. Pete. And one of the things I've been thinking a lot about lately, especially based off a conference on marriage I was speaking at last Friday, mm-hmm. was the role of faith in America. And you were talking about that on one of your interviews. You know, people can come to their values different ways. You don't necessarily have to be religious to have good values. Uh, There are other ways to do it as well. Um, It might be more challenging. It might take extra study, but, you know, you can get it through the proper uh, 
channeling of human reason, shall we say, uh, you know, the, the Athens part of Athens in Jerusalem, if you will. Right. Um, but talk a little bit about this. You were talking on a show, I don't remember which one, yeah. but you were talking about how important it is for people of faith to actually roll up their sleeves, and rather than retreat from public policy or the public sphere— by the way, we get a book on this every five years telling people of faith to withdraw and retreat. I think, <laughs> right? You know what I mean. I, I, every, I we, we, we tend to. You and I, I think, look at it exactly the other way around. Right. No, that's right. That's right. Yeah, no, I, it's a um, – the importance of faith in – public leadership and, and public policy um, can be seen, I think, at a couple different levels. One is um, that we believe at Pepperdine that there's a calling to public service, that uh, there are those who are called by God to participate not only uh, in an extracurricular way or a, even just a, a, a volunteering way, as important as those things are, but to consider running for office, to consider even careers in uh, public policy, whether it's from a nonprofit perspective or working directly for government. And I think these, uh, as you say, these arguments for withdrawal for people mm-hmm. of, of faith is exactly the wrong way okay. to go about it. Now, I think encouragingly, what we've seen over the last few years, especially in light of the COVID crisis is we've seen a number of people, particularly people of faith, getting involved at the local level on issues ranging from education to public safety. And this to me is, is a good thing. And I think it comes out of a response of saying, well, we, we kind of trusted our schools to do the right thing. We have now come to understand that they're not, and uh, I want to get involved. And yeah. whether that means running for a local school board or showing up at school board meetings, which yeah. tended to be really pretty quiet affairs, um, these, are, these are important aspects of civic engagement, which uh, can, in fact, shape and determine uh, the communities in which we live. And that is something, obviously, God cares about, not just us as individuals, but how we live in community and so that that calling to that level of engagement, I think, is is definitely uh, a voice that we need to listen to. And then, of course, there's the whole area and the history of the United States and being a place of such vibrant civil society in the religious dimension. Hold, hold and, it right there. Uh, Let me take a break. Yeah. You're on to a big point I want to give full throttle to when we come right back. Pete Peterson, and I'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Pete Peterson, he's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Pete, you were, you were on a hugely pregnant and poignant point right before the break about people of faith entering public policy, certainly even at local levels. I'll return to that in a moment, but you were going to make a point about our founding with regard to all yeah, this. Yeah, and the importance of people uh, through their faith-based institutions— uh, churches, uh, synagogues, and so forth, um, that that becomes the way in which, or the platform, if you will, through which people engage in community-building institutions, right? And so we see all over the country uh, organizations that are 
creating programs for uh, homelessness, people working on issues relating to education, um, people working on issues related to uh, public safety. Um, you know, that has always been a part of the American experience and uniquely so. You know, I'm thinking back on Arthur Brooks' book, Who Really Cares, yes. which really did do such a great job of analyzing America is by far the most civically engaged, volunteering-based, uh, philanthropically uh, motivated uh, country in the world. And when he continues to drill down, it really is uh, people of faith, uh, our people of faith that are doing so much of the work um, through volunteering and civic engagement and philanthropy. You know, uh, I'll say something, and I might get some pushback, and that's okay, probably more from some in the audience than from you. But when you do think about the social problems that we have in our society, any number of them, domestic problems, let me, let me, let me put it this way, I guess what I'm trying to say. If you think about the criminal justice issue and the issue of recidivism, I've never seen a program that mm. had better success than prison fellowship, Chuck Colson. Right. If you're looking yep. at homeless problem, the homeless problem, I've never I've never seen a problem a, a program that does better than the Salvation Army with the homeless. Um, if you're looking at addiction problems, I've frankly never seen anything better than faith based programs. And I will include AA and the Twelve Steps with their with their with their concept of a higher power in mm -hmm. that. In mm -hmm. that, um, it is a of grave concern to me that I'm reading stories, for example, on AA, that they're now removing the Lord's Prayer in uh, in, in in large parts mm. and, and in large different chapters and areas of it. You know, it's hard to as what it's, how did C.S. Lewis put it? You can't demand the function when you remove the organ. I believe is how he put it. But mm. but to your points, uh, Pete. To your point. Um, there is something different there. I guess this is what animated John DiUlio and the whole faith-based initiative program way back when, once upon a time. Absolutely. No, and again, we've talked several times about that historical moment yeah. in the late 80s and through the 90s where uh, governors and uh, policy scholars, researchers, uh, were so deeply focused on the importance of civil society, uh, local uh, nonprofit organizations, many of them grounded in in faith and uh, the importance. And you really have ticked off just several just incredible organizations um, like uh, Salvation Army and Prison Fellowship. That um, and those are just the national organizations. Right. You look underneath them, yes. and just the the more local ones that are very similarly. Uh, constituted and and uh, mission focused, uh, this remains, I, I think, the most optimistic part of of uh, America's political and policy culture. Is there going to? God, I have so many directions I want to go with this. <laughs> um, well, let me start with this one. Let me start with the easy one, and we'll get complicated. Um, let me try it this way. Like I'm a lawyer in a deposition, right? I'll be all nice up front, <laughs> and we'll get hard at the end. Uh, I'll butter you up. 
the school board issue that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. You're absolutely right. We totally neglected that. We, I think you said it was a quiet or, or, or forgotten area of public life for many of us uh, for too long. And, and, and that's, ex- that's precisely right. Uh, we didn't think about school board. We didn't think it was sexy, so to speak, or that important. We didn't want to commit our times to it. And I suppose the question to ask is, well, how well did that work out for you? And we're seeing the results of that question, the answers to that question now. And we're realizing we have to roll up our sleeves. Monday, I think it was Monday of this week. It was Monday or Tuesday. We commemorated the 60th anniversary of the famous Martin Luther King March on Washington. Yeah, I have a dream speech. Right? Yeah, was that yep. Monday or Tuesday? I don't remember. But it was 60 years this week. And <clears throat> everyone talks about Dr. King, Dr. King, Dr. King. They forget what his wife wanted people to remember, which is he was first Reverend King. Where do they think they got this idea from? Yeah. Where do they think that all that that came out of that march and that movement, where did it start? It, it didn't start, frankly, and for whatever it's worth, it didn't start in public institutions. It started in the churches. Yeah. No, that's right. And... um he, he was famous for saying. He was famous for saying the most important part of my sermon is not you here listening to it, but what you do with it when you leave the doors of the church. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was about taking faith and putting it into practice, both personally and and in community, and and calling others uh, to Christian ideals. Mm-hmm. Um, and that again, that's those have been aspects of not just aspects that 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 belittles it. Those have been foundational to America's uh, political and policymaking culture. And when you look today at uh, many of the the policy challenges that we face, um, and I believe you've touched on this before in a couple different areas, um, you know, the when the faith-based aspect of America's political culture is either demeaned or removed when it becomes much more material, when it becomes much more the focus that government is the only solution to these problems. That's when we get into a lot of bad places where people really feel disconnected from their governing institutions and from the common good. Well, that's half of it. And I thought, or I used to think that was 100% of it. But I've become aware lately that there's another half of this argument, and that is the issue of faith itself. It's not just the government. We have a faith problem in this country, too. We have a church problem in this country, too. Fascinated by some statistics Nick Kristoff uh, rattled off in a recent New York Times piece, and I have to take a break. Um, can I can I go through some of that with you when we come right yeah. back? The condition yep. of faith in America is kind of, I guess, what I'm getting at. And um, how, how, how far it's fallen and how deep in the soup we are if we don't reverse that, too. Pete Peterson and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Pete Peterson is my guest, dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. I don't know if there's a public policy school dean in the country. I don't think there is who speaks to these issues the way Pete does or cares about them the way he does. Um, Pete, let's talk about the other side of the role in faith and public service, and that is the faith part of it. You know my thing on, you know, I'm just fascinated by old ads and pop culture. You used Mm -hmm. to routinely see ads in the 70s and even 80s of 
couples getting married in churches with priests uh, or very clearly, mm-hmm. very clear churches. You see no ads like that anymore, in part because I don't think the Madison Avenue types think that way, but in part, too, if they do think that way, because they probably wouldn't have that much of a reception, or maybe they would and they just don't think they would. But Nick Kristoff had a column in the New York Times about a week ago, and this is astounding to me. I can't get past this. In the past 25 years in America, more people have left the church than became Christians in the First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, and the Billy Graham Crusades combined. More Mm. people in America in the past 25 years have left the church than have become Christians through the First and Second Great Awakenings and all the Billy Graham Crusades combined. We have a faith problem in this country, too, or at least a church problem. Yeah, and of course, when you think about, uh, I think that's the important point of what you just described there is this country. Yes. Uh, When we look at what's called the Global South and other areas, I mean, uh, you're you're seeing Great Awakening-type movements happening uh, around the world. But Obviously, the opposite seems to be happening here in the United States. And some of this is you wonder if it's the chicken or the egg, right? When you made that reference to uh, pop culture and advertising and not seeing those kinds of examples or or television or movies, how much of that is reflecting culture versus uh, promoting a certain vision of culture uh, that is then followed? That's obviously uh, up for debate, but what should not be up for debate are the trade-offs that we we know happen when you uh, become increasingly secularized and uh, much more material mm-hmm. in your outlook. Uh, Tocqueville was absolutely right in which he described religion, and by which he meant the, the Christian faith by and large, as one of America's greatest, what he called, political institutions. Maybe, no, our first, didn't mean that. maybe our first one. Did he maybe say he was our first of our political institutions, if I'm not mistaken? Well, and, but he also made it the—he he made a normative statement that it really was the best. Okay, okay, good. good. And in that, he wasn't making a, a partisan argument of Democrats or Republicans or anything like that, but he was saying that in a free people, understanding that it can't just be the law— that determines your behavior and prevents you from doing certain things in a very free society. There need to be other, if you will, internal governing mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And religion and faith were certainly a large part of that. What do you do when you have such great freedom? Do you rely on the law and the government as the only thing that prevents you from doing bad things to other people, or are there other influences? And again, it was Tocqueville saying that this really is so important. So if that becomes removed, if we see this increasing secularization of our citizenry, what are the things that we should be expecting in our broader culture? And I I don't think that we've we've fully contemplated that. Now, that's just around behavior. What about when we look at civil society, when we see fewer and fewer people going to church or synagogue, what does that mean for the organizations that those institutions supported, like the prison fellowships, which rely on church-based support, 
like the Salvation Army organizations, the local soup kitchens, the local uh, organizations that are responding to people who are suffering from addiction. Um, what I, happens? I, I, yeah. Well, I, I I have to take a break, but I, I can give you an answer on the other side of this break that I think you'll agree with if 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 you'll bear yeah. with me while we just take a quick commercial break on this. Let me let me pick up on that very important question with Pete Peterson when we come right back. What happens to civil society? What happens to society once you take out the Judeo-Christian or faith element from it. I will give you all my, this is what we call a tease in radio. We will answer it when we come back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson, uh, Liebson Show. Uh, Pete Peterson is my guest. Uh, Pete, you probably don't ever mispronounce your name. Why do I mispronounce my name? I, I don't have enough co- hard consonants like you do. <laughs> He's the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Publicpolicy.pepperdine. Dot edu. What happens to a society or a civil society or civil society when you take out the faith element? Pete, let me let me push hard on this question that you're posing and uh, thinking through and teaching through. Um, I think it's something equivalent as to what happens to uh, elephants in Palanisburg when you take away the males. I think it's something that of like what happens to a household when you take out the fathers. Um, I give you California. You were on... Uh, a fly-by-night show on a network, the other fly-by-night network, the other day, <laughs> where you were talking about California's ten percent of the U.S. population and thirty percent of homeless and fifty percent of unsheltered homeless in encampments, right. and streets, and open-air drug markets. That's yeah. what happens. Now, ironically, yes, ironically, and not ironically, ironically, you were talking about the focus on the material as opposed to the higher things in life, the more durable, important things in life, Mm. it's ironic that it is that focus on the material that has led to people living with the least material abilities now, you know, having having been brought up in, in, in one of the greatest countries the world has ever known with the most amount of money and intelligence and wisdom at its access the world has ever known, they are now living like a bombed out city in Darfur, uh, which is what these encampments look like. Um, that that's the dramatic irony, but that's what happens. We now think, I think, of people too often, as we do relationships too often, as not durable and as not um, when they're not durable as disposable. And I think we mm-hmm. have public policy mm-hmm. in California that thinks people are disposable and thinks marriages are disposable and thinks these important things, what used to be important, are um, are uh, ephemeral. Yeah. You know, one of the other aspects, and, and I know uh, I'm, I'm one to quote Tocqueville many times on your show. You bring it out of me, Seth, I have to say. Um, Tocqueville also said the importance of faith in a democracy is that in faith, and this would be the Abrahamic faith, if you will, that the, the goals of man's life are put beyond his reach. In other words, the the concept or understanding of heaven is a or hell for that matter is a way of understanding that as hard as we work and the goals that we have for this life there is something coming afterwards and there is a phrase borrowed from one of our favorite uh, political scientists political theorists uh described as immunitizing the eschaton <laughs> right used to be a bumper sticker for YAF yeah yes. yeah don't uh, immunitize is, the eschaton. Yeah. And 
And essentially what they're, they're saying is in a materialistic culture, in a secularized culture where there's really no way of understanding anything beyond this life, then it really does place all the focus, the emphasis, the pressure of doing everything from resolving homelessness to poverty to all these issues which we should care about and engage in, but it, it forces our focus and our goals in our personal lives, right? So marriages become disposable, right? Yeah. If I'm not having my needs met, right. um, the thought of the sacrifices the one needs to make for our kids, if that gets in the way of my goals, then I need to, you know, disconnect from those responsibilities. All these things are are tied together. And the uh, it, that's the other aspect of this perspective that faith, only faith, and I would argue the Judeo-Christian faiths can bring to this, uh, to this argument, which plays out every day in public policy. It's no accident, to keep pushing you, um, it's no accident that that's the one thing Marx wanted to go after first, faith and yeah. family. Religion was the opioid opioid of the opiate of the masses and in chapter two of the manifesto he said the 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 nuclear family had to be targeted as well kind of interesting that that's what they had to get rid of the marxist had to get rid of leaving only one relationship right that between the state and the individual that's right that's all that was left that's right and 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 if i can stick on the marriage thing i was doing the fall of religion in america let's talk about the fall of marriage in america Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it's about 50, the marriage rate's about 50% of what it was in the 1980s. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, 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 and you, I mean, I don't know where to go with the marriage thing, except how important it is. You and I are always, always reading Brad Wilcox. It, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's so important for so many things, whether it's about poverty or whether it's about education outcomes, but it also has something to do with psychology too, doesn't it? And happiness. It does. I mean, it, this this really is about how we find our identity, uh, and a great marriage is such a great place to find that identity. Obviously, it was intended to be that way. Yeah. I would say from uh, from Scripture uh, giving us this arrangement um, of two very different human beings uh, in so many ways, but nonetheless find mutual support in each other. Um, but again, I, I see this also tied to a growing secularism, uh, secularism in the United States and the importance, frankly, of of churches being very involved. You know, I, I have to say I go to a pretty vibrant church out here. I don't hear a lot of sermons on marriage. I don't hear a lot of ties in between scripture and God's design for marriage. It might be in a class, right? Or if you want to go to something, you know, a Bible study that might be on that specific topic. But I I do think that the data that you just outlined has to be alarming enough that it becomes much more of our, our uh, not just policy discourse, but faith discourse to talk about the importance of these institutions. It's another thing that's become disposable, marriage, right? I mean, mm. people, when they get married, they take vows. A vow is a promise to God, and in those vows, they typically say, till death do us part, right? right. Um, 
you know the band Peter, Paul, and Mary, of course. Paul um, uh, Paul Stuckey became a born-again Christian and wrote the wedding mm. song, There is Love. And it's about the permanence. It was in, as it was in the beginning, it is now until the end. No one thinks of marriage that I mean, No one has overstated yeah. it. Too few think of marriage that way. They treat vows like temporary excitations. And again, I think it does tie back into where uh, when things get uh, conflict with the goals or uh, value that we place on ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there can be many reasons for a divorce, yeah. um, but certainly some of the reasons that we're seeing have to do with um, self yep. and selfishness. Yep. Yep. That's right. Love is what perse- perseveres, I believe, we're told in uh, in First Corinthians. And, uh, yep. and it says it only perseveres if there is no self-seeking. I believe that's all in the same paragraph. Pete Peterson, my gosh, I wish I could keep you for two more hours. <laughs> An hour's Always good to be enough. with you, Seth. Bless you. Have a great holiday weekend, sir. You too. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Portions of this show brought to you by our good friends at Y-Refi. Y-Refi is a fantastic investment opportunity for those of you uh, who may not be trusting this economy. It's, a sec- it's an investment in a secure, collateralized portfolio that's not tied to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. You can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's a 10.25% fixed rate of return. There's no attack on principle if you ever need your money back at any time. You get your monthly statement with no surprises, and there are absolutely no fees. You can even turn your income on or off, compound it, whatever you like. A lot of flexibility with Y-Refi, a lot of freedom. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y.com. Or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-24. That's 888-Y-REFI-24. Stick on that word persevere for a moment that I was using with Pete Peterson. We have to have all this alliteration with the letter P, I suppose. (laughs) Persevere. Um, It means to persist, to continue in the face of obstacles and challenges. And I think, um, as I was saying earlier in the week, as I was saying at this marriage conference last week, the problem many of us confront is we see obstacles and challenges as the things to overcome, as bigger than our original vows, uh, vows or journeys or goals or missions or really destinations. We think more on the obstacle than the purpose, the point, the destination. Winston Churchill, I think uh, I concluded by that talk, I, I think, by, by quoting Winston Churchill, speaking at his alma mater, by the way, this was not, I don't believe, a parliamentary speech. It was a speech to his alma mater. He said, never give in, never give in, never, 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 never in nothing great or small, large or petty, in part because you never know, in part because you never know if the petty is large, if the small is great. Never give in on anything. And it seems to me the course of the culture over the past several decades has been a course of us turning the large into the petty and the petty into the large, us manipulating those orientations and creating disorientations. We've abandoned what Augustine called the ordo amoris, the order, the priority of loves. And it begins by putting 
the self first. We should have learned by now what that leads to, but we now see the downwash and aftermath all around us as a result. And um, that's what we need to think about. The higher, bigger things. Not the petty, but the large. Not the small, but the great. And never confuse the two. All right. That's a lot there. <laughs> it's a heavy Friday here, isn't it, David? I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.